0: Chapter One of Book Six of Les Misérables, Volume Five by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amy Hankst. Les Misérables, Volume Five by Victor Hugo, translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book Six: The Sleepless Night. Chapter One: The Sixteenth of February, eighteen thirty-three. The night of the 16th to the 17th of February, 1833, was a blessed night. Above its shadows, heaven stood open. It was the wedding night of Marius and Cosette. The day had been adorable. It had not been the grand festival dreamed by the grandfather, a fairy spectacle, with a confusion of cherubim and cupids over the heads of the bridal pair, a marriage worthy to form the subject of a painting to be placed over a door. But it had been sweet and smiling. The manner of marriage in 1833 was not the same as it is today. France had not yet borrowed from England that supreme delicacy of carrying off one's wife, of fleeing, on coming out of a church, of hiding oneself with shame from one's happiness, and of combining the ways of the bankrupt with the delights of the song of songs. People had not yet grasped to the full the chastity, exquisiteness, and decency of jolting their paradise in a posting-chaise, of breaking up their mystery with click clacks, of taking for a nuptial bed the bed of an inn, and of leaving behind them in a commonplace chamber at so much a night the most sacred of the souvenirs of life mingled pell mell with the tete a tete of the conductor of the diligence and the maid servant of the inn. In this second half of the nineteenth century in which we are now living, the mayor and his scarf, the priest and his chasuble, the law and God no longer suffice they must be eked out by the postilion de logement, a blue waistcoat turned up with red and with bell-buttons, a plaque like a vamp-brace, knee-breeches of green leather, oats to the Norman horses with their tails knotted up, false galoons, varnished hat, long powdered locks, an enormous whip and tall boots. France does not yet carry elegance to the length of doing like the English nobility. And raining down on the post-chaise of the bridal pair, a hailstorm of slippers, trodden down at heel, and of worn-out shoes, in memory of Churchill, afterwards Marlborough, or Malbrook, who was assailed on his wedding-day by the wrath of an aunt which brought him good luck. Old shoes and slippers do not, as yet, form a part of our nuptial celebrations, but patience, as good taste continues to spread, we shall come to that." In 1833, a hundred years ago, marriage was not conducted at a full trot. Strange to say, at that epoch, people still imagined that a wedding was a private and a social festival, that a patriarchal banquet does not spoil a domestic solemnity, that gaiety even in excess provided it be honest and decent, does happiness no harm, and that, in short, it is a good and a venerable thing that the fusion of these two destinies, whence a family is destined to spring, should begin at home, and that the household should thenceforth have its nuptial chamber as its witness. And people were so immodest as to marry in their own homes. The marriage took place, therefore, in accordance with this now superannuated fashion, at M. Gillenormand's house. Natural and commonplace as this matter of marrying is, the bands to publish, the papers to be drawn up, the mayoralty, and the church produce some complication. They could not get ready before the 16th of February. Now we note this detail for the pure satisfaction of being exact. It chanced that the 16th fell on shrove Tuesday. Hesitations, scruples, particularly on the part of Aunt Gilles Shrove Tuesday, exclaimed the grandfather, so much the better. There is a proverb, mariage un mari gras, point in gras. Let us proceed. Here goes for the 16th. Do you want to delay Marius? No, certainly not, replied the lover. Let us marry, then, cried the grandfather. Accordingly, the marriage took place on the 16th, notwithstanding the public merry-making. It rained that day but there is always in the sky a tiny scrap of blue at the service of happiness, which lovers see, even when the rest of creation is under an umbrella. On the preceding evening, Jean Valjean handed to Marius, in the presence of M. Gillenormand, the five hundred and eighty-four thousand francs. As the marriage was taking place under the regime of community of property, the papers had been simple. Henceforth, Tuisson was of no use to Jean Valjean cosette inherited her and promoted her to the rank of lady's-maid as for jean valjean a beautiful chamber in the gillenormand's house had been furnished expressly for him and cosette had said to him in such an irresistible manner father i entreat you that she had almost persuaded him to promise that he would come and occupy it a few days before that fixed on for marriage an accident happened to jean valjean he crushed the thumb of his right hand this was not a serious matter; he had not allowed any one to trouble himself about it, nor to dress it, nor even to see his hurt, not even Cosette. Nevertheless, this had forced him to swathe his hand in a linen bandage, and to carry his arm in a sling, and it had prevented his signing. m Gillenormand, in his capacity of Cosette's supervising guardian, had supplied his place. We will not conduct the reader either to the mayor's office or to the church one does not follow a pair of lovers to that extent and one is accustomed to turn one's back on the drama as soon as it puts a wedding nosegay in its buttonhole. we will confine ourselves to noting an incident which though unnoticed by the wedding party marked the transit from the rue des filets du cavert to the church of st paul at that epoch the northern extremity of the rue st louis was in process of repaving it was barred off beginning with the rue des parcs royals It was impossible for the wedding carriages to go directly to St. Paul. They were obliged to alter their course, and the simplest way was to turn through the boulevard. One of the invited guests observed that it was Shrove Tuesday, and that there would be a jam of vehicles. Why? asked M. Because of the maskers. Capital, said the grandfather, let us go that way. These young folks are on the way to be married. They are about to enter the serious part of life. This will prepare them for seeing a bit of the masquerade!" They went by way of the boulevard. The first wedding coach held Cosette and Aunt Gillenormand, M. Gillenormand, and Jean Valjean. Marius, still separated from his betrothed according to usage, did not come until the second. The nuptial train, on emerging from the Rue des Filets du Calvaire, became entangled in a long procession of vehicles which form an endless chain from the Madeleine to the Bastille and from the bastille to the madeleine maskers abounded on the boulevard in spite of the fact that it was raining at intervals mary andrew pantaloon and clown persisted in the good humour of that winter of eighteen thirty three paris had disguised itself as venice such shrove tuesdays are no longer to be seen nowadays everything which exists being a scattered carnival there is no longer any carnival the sidewalks were overflowing with pedestrians, and the windows with curious spectators. The terraces which crowned the peristyles of the theatres were boarded with spectators. Besides the maskers, they stared at that procession, peculiar to Shrove Tuesday as to Longchamp, of vehicles of every description, citadines, tapissiers, carrioles, cabriolets, marching in order, rigorously riveted to each other by the police regulations, and locked into rails, as it were anyone in these vehicles, as at once a spectator, and a spectacle. Police sergeants maintained, on the sides of the boulevard, these two interminable parallel files, moving in contrary directions, and saw to it that nothing interfered with that double current, those two brooks of carriages, flowing the one downstream, the other upstream, the one toward the Chaussée d'Antin, the other toward the Faubourg Saint-Antoine. The carriages of the peers of France, and the ambassadors, emblazoned with coats of arms, held the middle of the way, going and coming freely. Certain joyous and magnificent trains—notably, that of Beaufort—had the same privilege. In this gaiety of Paris, England cracked her whip, Lord Seymour's post-chaise, harassed by a nickname from the populace, passed with great noise. In the double file, along which the municipal guards galloped like sheep-dogs, honest family coaches, loaded down with great-aunts and grandmothers, displayed at their doors fresh groups of children in disguise—clowns of seven years of age, columbines of six, ravishing little creatures who felt that they formed an official part of the public mirth, who were imbued with the dignity of the harlequinade, and who possessed the gravity of functionaries from time to time a hitch arose somewhere in the procession of vehicles one or other of the two lateral files halted until the knot was disentangled one carriage delayed sufficed to paralyze the whole line then they set out again on the march the wedding carriages were in the file proceeding toward the bastille and skirting the right side of the boulevard at the top of the poachou there was a stoppage nearly at the same moment the other file which was proceeding toward the Madeleine, halted also. At that point of the file there was a carriage-load of maskers. These carriages, or to speak more correctly, these wagon-loads of maskers, are very familiar to Parisians. If they were missing on a Shrove Tuesday, or at the Mid-Lent, it would be taken in bad part, and people would say, there's something behind that, probably the Ministry is about to undergo a change. A pile of Cassandras, Harlequins, and Columbines, Jolted along, high above the passers-by, All possible grotesqueness, From the Turk to the savage, Hercules, supporting Marquise, Fishwives who would have made Rabelais stop up his ears, Just as the Mainids made Aristophanes drop his eyes, Toe-wigs, pink tights, dandified hats, Spectacles of a grimacer, Three-cornered hats of Jeannot tormented with a butterfly, Shouts directed at pedestrians, Fists on hips, bold attitudes, bare shoulders, immodesty unchained, a chaos of shamelessness driven by a coachman crowned with flowers. This is what that institution was like. Greece stood in need of a chariot of thespis. France stands in need of the hackney-coach of Ed. Everything can be parodied, even parody. The Saturnalia, that grimace of antique beauty, ends through exaggeration after exaggeration in Shrove Tuesday, and the Bacchanal, formerly crowned with sprays of vine-leaves and grapes, inundated with sunshine, displaying her marble breast in the divine semi-nudity, having at the present day lost her shape under the soaked rags of the North, has finally come to be called the Jack Pudding. The tradition of carriage-loads of maskers runs back to the most ancient days of the monarchy the accounts of louis the eleventh allot to the bailiff of the palace twenty sous tourna for three coaches of masquerades in the cross-roads in our day these noisy heaps of creatures are accustomed to have themselves driven in some ancient cuckoo carriage whose imperial they load down or they overwhelm a hired landau with its top thrown back with their tumultuous groups twenty of them ride in a carriage intended for six they cling to the seats to the rumble On the cheeks of the hood, on the shafts, they even bestride the carriage-lamps. They stand, sit, lie, with their knees drawn up in a knot and their legs hanging. The women sit on the men's laps. Far away, above the throng of heads, their wild pyramid is visible. These carriage-loads form mountains of mirth in the midst of rout. Collet, Panard, and Piron flew from it, enriched with slaying. This carriage, which has become colossal through its freight, has an air of conquest. Uproar reigns in front, tumult behind. People vociferate, shout, howl. There they break forth and writhe with enjoyment. Gaiety roars, sarcasm flames forth, joviality is flaunted like a red flag. Two jades there drag farce blossomed forth in an apotheosis. It is the triumphal car of laughter. A Laughter that is too cynical to be frank in truth, this laughter is suspicious. This laughter has a mission. it is charged with proving the carnival to the Parisians. These fishwife vehicles, in which one feels one knows not what shadows, set the philosopher to thinking. There is government therein there one lays one's finger on a mysterious affinity between public men and public women. It certainly is sad that turpitude heaped up should give a sum total of gaiety that by piling ignominy upon opprobrium the people should be enticed, that the system of spying and serving as caryatids to prostitution should amuse the rabble when it confronts them, that the crowd loves to behold that monstrous living pile of tinsel rags, half dung, half light, roll by on four wheels, howling and laughing, that they should clap their hands at this glory composed of all shames, That there would be no festival for the populace did not the police promenade in their midst these sorts of twenty-headed hydras of joy. But what can be done about it? These beribboned and beflowered tumbrils of mire are insulted and pardoned by the laughter of the public. The laughter of all is the accomplice of universal degradation. Certain unhealthy festivals disaggregate the people and convert them into the populace. And populaces, like tyrants, require buffoons— the king has Roccolo, the populace has the Mary Andrew. Paris is great, mad city on every occasion, that it is a great sublime city. There the carnival forms part of politics. Paris, let us confess it, willingly allows infamy to furnish it with comedy. She only demands of her masters, when she has masters, one thing—paint me the mud. Rome was of the same mind. She loved Nero. Nero was a titanic letterman. Chance ordained, as we have just said, that one of these shapeless clusters of masked men and women, dragged about on a vast galash, should halt on the left of the boulevard, while the wedding train halted on the right. The carriage-load of masks caught sight of the wedding carriage containing the bridal party opposite them on the other side of the boulevard. "Hullo," said a masker, "'here's a wedding.' "'A sham wedding,' retorted another. "'We are the genuine article.' And being too far off to accost the wedding-party, and fearing also the rebuke of the police, the two maskers turned their eyes elsewhere. At the end of another minute, the carriage-load of maskers had their hands full, the multitude set to yelling, which is the crowd's caress to masquerades, and the two maskers, who had just spoken, had to face the throng with their comrades, and did not find the entire repertory of projectiles of the fish-markets too extensive to retort to the enormous verbal attacks of the populace. A frightful exchange of metaphors took place between the maskers and the crowd. In the meanwhile, two other maskers in the same carriage, a Spaniard with an enormous nose, an elderly air, and a huge black moustache, and a gaunt fishwife, who was quite a young girl, masked with a loo, had also noticed the wedding, and while their companions and the passers-by were exchanging insults, they had held a dialogue in a low voice. Their aside was covered by the tumult, and was lost in it. The gusts of rain had drenched the front of the vehicle, which was wide open. The breezes of February are not warm. As the fishwife, clad in a low-necked gown, replied to the Spaniard, she shivered, laughed, and coughed. Here is their dialogue. Say now. What, Daddy? Do you see that old cove? What old cove? Yonder in the first cart on our side. THE ONE WITH HIS ARM HUNG UP IN A BLACK CRAVAT. YES. WELL, I'M SURE THAT I KNOW HIM. AH. I'M WILLING THAT THEY SHOULD CUT MY THROAT, AND I'M READY TO SWEAR THAT I NEVER HAVE SAID EITHER YOU, THOU, OR I IN MY LIFE IF I DON'T KNOW THAT Parisian, PARIS IN PANTINE TODAY. CAN YOU SEE THE BRIDE IF YOU STOOP DOWN? NO. AND THE BRIDEGROOM? THERE'S NO BRIDEGROOM IN THAT TRAP. BAH! UNLESS IT'S THE OLD FELLOW. Try to get a sight of the bride by stooping very low. I can't. Never mind, that old cove who has something the matter with his paw, I know, and that I'm positive. And what good does it do to know him? No one can tell, sometimes it does. I don't care a hang for old fellows, that I don't. I know him. Know him if you want to. How the devil does he come to be one of the wedding party? We're in it too. Where does that wedding come from? How should I know? Listen. Well, what? There's one thing you ought to do. What's that? Get off of our trap and spin that wedding. What for? To find out where it goes and what it is. Hurry up and jump down, trot my girl, your legs are young. I can't quit the vehicle. Why not? I'm hired. Ah, the devil! I owe my fishwife day to the prefecture. That's true. If I leave the cart, the first inspector who gets his eye on me will arrest me. You know that well enough. Yes, I do. I am bought by the government for to-day. All the same, that old fellow bothers me. Do the old fellows bother you? But you're not a young girl. He's in the first carriage—well, in the bride's trap. What then? So he is the father. What concern is that of mine? I tell you that he's the father—as if he were the only father. Listen. What? I can't go out otherwise than masked. Here I'm concealed. No one knows that I'm here. But to-morrow there will be no more maskers. It's Ash Wednesday. I run the risk of being nabbed. I must sneak back to my hole. But you are free." Not particularly. More than I am at any rate. Well, what of that? You must try to find out where that wedding party went to. Where it went? Yes. I know. Where's it going, then? To the Cadran Bleu and the first place it's not in that direction. Well, to La Rappée. Or elsewhere. It's free. Wedding parties are at liberty. That's not the point at all. I tell you, you must try to learn for me what that wedding is, who that old cove belongs to, and where that wedding pair lives. I like that. That would be queer. It's so easy to find out a wedding party that passed through the street on a Shrove Tuesday a week afterwards. A pin in a hay It ain't possible. That don't matter, you must try. You understand me, Azelma." The two files resumed their movement on both sides of the boulevard, in opposite directions, and the carriage of the maskers lost sight of the trap of the bride. This concludes Book Six, Chapter One of Les Miserables, recording by Amy Hengst.